The Product Podcast is back with a brand new season. This time we are featuring eight of the brightest minds in the industry. Our latest episodes will highlight insights, methods and strategies that are being used at the top tech companies around the world. If you are eager to start your product career, head to our website to learn more about product management certificates. This week, we kick off the new season with Tarun Gangwani of Twitch. In the first of our eight weekly episodes, Tarun unravels the psychological side of user experience, product management, and creating delight by getting into the mind of customers. This is Jay. And this is Eva. And we hope you enjoy all the latest insights brought to you by Product School. Tarun, I want to know, did you ever wonder about how products and services were made when you were growing up? Did you ever have these sorts of questions in your mind? At an earlier age, I was actually interested in neuroscience and like the study of the brain and how, you know, humans thought about their world and their surroundings. And so necessarily that was in the background of why I was thinking about how technology and humans interacted together. And so I would ask myself things like, why do we find it so natural to touch screens in this way? Why do we find it natural to type on keyboards in this way? So I'd ask myself these questions over and over and it just led me to like wanting to really dig into how things were made and how products were made and software was created. Um, That budding interest led me to, you know, going into design actually at first because design is kind of the study of user experience in their world. And so necessarily you're thinking about branches of cognitive science, psychology, uh, you know, like the ways that physiology and people interact with things. And then of course, you know, computer science and technology there as well. So all of these things wrapped up. That's how I early considered my life as starting to become a PM is just basically thinking about how people think. One thing that I noticed about your profile is that with regards to your higher education, you could have gone anywhere and in any direction, really. And I was wondering if you had any role models or people that you knew that worked in tech and maybe provide you with some guidance into this world. After high school and throughout my childhood, it was actually, you know, at first my dad. Um, My dad has been in the software business for a little while. He worked for a company uh, that was uh, acquired by IBM. And then that next company was acquired by a company called Teradata. And now he runs his own startup. And so he's been in the Mm -hmm. software space for a little while. And so I would always watch like his career growth and trajectory and, you know, study how, you know, software was made through him and would ask him these questions. And so I think that's a huge inspiration for me jumping into this field. And then as I, you know, went through college, a lot of cognitive science today, modern cognitive science is modeling how the brain works using uh, mathematics and technology and artificial intelligence. And so, again, there was that influence of tech and how software is made. And then that kind of hit a pinnacle when I entered design school. And of course, you know, most designers are that are going to design school are doing design for software or for hardware or for systems. There are obviously designers who go to design school for art or to take that in a direction of research, um, perhaps maybe even physical and product design. Uh, For me, though, given that backdrop, it was just natural for me to apply what I learned in the UX discipline to software, um, which led me to my first uh, job. Program in human-computer interaction design. And I wanted to know, how do you think the way we approach user experience has changed in the past decade? 
That's a really good question. I think that user experience in the previous decade has mostly been about understanding how people work with one piece of software. How does this one piece of software, how can we make that experience delightful? So especially with the advent of the iPhone and apps, it was this notion that if I launched an app and saw a window, how do I make that window experience super awesome? And that's super great because it helps improves like point interactions throughout your day. So the thinking is, well, if I have a great experience here and then 30 seconds later, I have a great experience over there. It's a good experience overall. But now we've started to apply service design and kind of cross-cutting user experience thinking and systems thinking to user experience so that now we're seeing the advent of things like handoff from your phone to your computer. Or in my world where I'm in the developer experience world, that's thinking about how does one go from GitHub to their terminal to our developer experience tools to their, uh, their build chain, et cetera. And considering the user experience across all of that and then stepping back and going, where can I provide the most value as a designer and now product manager throughout that journey? So it's kind of a difference of point interaction versus journey-based user experience design. And this is especially true when you look at the enterprise software world where you have to consider the context in which a person is putting hands on keys and actually interacting with your software, they might be doing it because they got a page on their phone. And that's why they're sitting in front of their computer, right? In the case of an alert that might have occurred, software fails. If uh, on the other hand, it's like a person who has his hands messy because he's in the, you know, cut, he's in the uh, printing room floor and he's trying to use your software to, he or she is trying to optimize like how the printing press works using the software that we that has been provided by say the company you don't know about that the Washington Post or New York Times is using like they are now having to consider their experiences in context i think that's the biggest difference what is amazing is that users still think about the work behind a digital product is similar to what was happening in the first generation when it was all about how a certain website looked but actually product managers today They consider much more the entire journey, how one thing connects to the other. And I'm wondering, what's your opinion on this sort of disconnect between user experience and the work of product managers that are building it? We're doing our job if they're not aware of what's going on. I mean, if if they're just going from place to place and everything just works together, that's the best part. Especially when it comes to enterprise technology or thinking in systems technology, the last thing you want is to uh, distract the user with like splash pages or interstitials or fancy like graphics and you know things like that that used to be the heyday in the earlier days of you know software design. Now we're like deliberately modernizing and streamlining all of that journey and in terms of UI patterns, in terms of experiences, in terms of interactivity. So. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a feature, not a bug, that we are hoping that people don't notice those things. And if they do, obviously, hopefully it's in a good way. Like the handoffs from, like, for example, your phone to your computer, if that just works, then it's magical and it does spark that delight that we all seek as product people. But um, even if they don't, that's okay too. Yeah, I do remember when I was growing up, those cool loading screens from video games, which today are disappearing, right, Jay? Yeah, 100%. Um, people want to get straight into the action. And of course, it's exactly what Tarun was saying. It's better for the user not to notice this sort of background work. 
And so I want to ask you about your first position, which was the technical team lead at Bloomington. How did you find responding to requests from non-technical teams? Did it help you build empathy once you became a PM later in life? Totally. And that experience specifically taught me just how much people don't care about the, the how tech is made or as we sometimes call the sausage factory. Now, people don't really have any interest in that. What they care is the job to be done, as we say in product world, which is like, what are we what is the user trying to achieve and what are the steps to achieve it and how can we get out of the way as much as possible? So in the IT world, especially, you are providing a service to people to get their needs met. Like for example, my computer is broken or my internet doesn't work or uh, I'm wanting to install a router or something like that, right? And so what I would look at is how do we create processes that streamline that for not only one user asking, but a hundred users asking? Or how do I create tutorials for our staff as they onboard? How do I make it so they understand how to repeatedly practice this uh, you know, IT support mechanism at scale? And so I definitely would build empathy by going on those appointments myself or taking cases and taking tickets myself and seeing where the user and and customer would struggle. And by identifying that and empathizing there, it helped me build better tutorials, better processes in your product. Of course, that must have been really valuable because it's in the job description, right? To solve problems and also put solutions in place. So your next experience was a, a primo and you're working in user experience. I want to ask you about this in particular because there are certain product managers who don't come from specific user-centric backgrounds. How important is it to have a detailed understanding of user experience approaches? I think that user experience is a core foundation to be a PM. There are like basically three stools to being a product manager, three legs of a stool. There's the business side, how do products get marketed and how do they scale? And what is the business impact, competitive analysis, SWOT analysis, doing those like core exercises to understand whether or not you have product market fit. And then the second stool of the, the second leg of the stool is uh, the technology side. How are things made? What tech stack are we using? How does that fit within the system? How is it installed? What is the support? What's the life cycle of that technology? And then the final one is design. Uh, The final leg is around how do users interact with your technology given the business context, right? And all three of those legs, if in just like any stool, if you cut one off, the product is not usable. It's actually just going to fall over. And if you don't consider those three things, uh, and I would argue design, you know, from a bias perspective is probably the most important thing to consider. Either way, um, they're all super important when bringing products to market. So, uh, coming from a user experience background, I'm 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 happy that I came from that perspective because I will never go wrong if I think about the users' problems and the customers' problems first. Uh, it, sometimes, if you think about the market and think about innovation, you end up building things that maybe people don't want. And, and that's a risk. Some people take risks and it works out. And, and, they're, and people are very good at taking these risks when they understand the difference between wants and needs for users. But that, again, goes back to understanding how users think. And there are other, tech, there are other products out there that are just great technology that are like super awesome technology, but they don't have a use case and they can't sell it. Cool. <laughs> so if you focus on the users, you'll probably find a market 
someone will buy it. If you really kill it, someone will buy it. And also with technology, people will look past bugs and issues uh, if you focus on the users. They're, in fact, every day, um, you know, I'm so happy to have such a great developer community here at Twitch where they're forgiving. They trust us. They say, okay, yeah. I understand. You've got a lot of things going on. We want to work lockstep with you. Um, we have developers of all um, backgrounds and, and from different company sizes. And all of them have one thing in common where they just love the product and love what we do so much that they're willing to accept that things will take time. That's, that's, that's the dream, right? And so the only way to do that is to focus on the user experience and focus on the user journey and customer happiness, first and foremost. It must be fantastic to have the trust of the users and have them trust you as well. Um, but moving on, I wanted to ask you about your experience at IBM, um, because everyone knows that IBM was one of the main initiators of the computer revolution. And so I wanted to know, how did it feel to join a huge multinational that has so many things going on and such a long and storied history. How did it feel when you started working there? So I learned about IBM actually at the Interaction Design Association conference uh, that was in 2013. And I was, you know, just searching for my first like full-time like user experience job. So the, the job at Aprima was an internship and it was during the time that I was doing my master's degree in user experience design. Mm. So, and then the technical lead job was like my full-time job while I was at school. Um, so now when I'm moving into getting my first user experience, like J-O-B job, mm -hmm. uh, thing that I was looking for was somewhere where I could grow and study the discipline of design within a practical setting, right? Like I've been studying it in a theoretical sense, but now how do I apply that practically? So as I was rocking around the interior, the uh, interaction design conference, I was meeting with recruiters from Microsoft, from Google, from all of these great companies and, that you've heard of that are like modern tech companies. And then you see yeah. IBM. And so I, you know, the recruiter at the time, uh, it's she'll, if she's listening to this, she's going to remember the story. She, she came up to me and goes, Hey, I know you're talking to a lot of great companies here and, um, you certainly seem like you're very passionate and interested in technology. Why don't you come work for IBM? And I was like, all the only thing I know about IBM is, is blue collars and, and, uh, you know, nine to five shifts and black briefcases and, you know, big systems and big servers. Like, what are you talking about? Like user experience design. So it turns out that the CEO of the company f founded, basically sponsored an initiative to build a whole new practice of how design worked. I mean, just, just understanding of course, that IBM's had a rich history in design. Uh, from the times of Eero Saarinen and Elliot Noyes and Paul mm -hmm. Rand and Charles and Ray Eames, the history of the rich history of design and how the masters of design have flown through design at IBM is something you don't really consider every day uh, until just oh. recently, of course, where actually the design discipline is like very much proven out mm -hmm. and they're probably one of the biggest design organizations in the world right now. But when they were starting out, um, they were just saying, we have this rich history and we've always thought about users, but we need to come back and champion them again at the highest levels of the company. So they started IBM Design and they were hiring their first set of designers right out of college. Um, yes, they hired designers from, you know, uh, in the industry, uh, designers from Frog, 
uh, designers from uh, IDEO. Uh, actually, the design thinking framework comes from IDEO. Um, mm. And so all of that discipline and knowledge was brought in. But the doers, the worker bees, the first designers they wanted, they wanted fresh out of college with fresh perspectives to come in and, and infuse the, the company with design. And so I was one of the lucky, fortunate people to be in that first class. Um, and we were 40 designers in a conference room, a set of conference rooms in a building that was just in a, like a, an older IBM building that had yet to be really transformed into uh, the studios that came a year later. And now there are 15 maybe more, maybe way more studios now around the world in places like Shanghai and Beijing and, and Europe and, and the United States. And uh, they must now employ like well over 5,000 designers around the world. Mm. And that's not even enough. I mean, there are over probably 200,000 engineers. So the ratio of designers to engineers is still low, is still uh, quite low. It, it needs to be somewhere like, you know, closer to one to 10 or one to eight, ideally. But it, at the time, it was much higher than that. And so um, just having that experience, and I, I, I will admit, I had no idea that they, you know, had the wherewithal and vision to pull that off. But being on the ground and seeing that, uh, it, it blew me away. And now a lot of larger companies are taking IBM's lead and and reconsidering how design is thought of in their companies from a cultural perspective. For not just a, we need to create a design system and align UI patterns. We need to think about systems. We need to think about end to end. And that's going back to, you know, earlier in the conversation is IBM really taught me that, yeah, this is where the design field is going. This is where the shift is going. So, yeah, I understand you also experienced a very interesting transformation while you were at IBM, which is the transition from products being one-off transactions towards software as a service and subscription-based products. Um, what is your vision of this whole growing sector of the digital industry? What do you think? What sort of changes does it bring to product management? Well, I think that there's a benefit on both the business side and the customer side and the user side. Everybody wins in a software as a service model. The enterprise that is developing the service wins because they can repeatedly put out a great product at scale, develop it once and apply it to many use cases with some minor tweaks. Previously, you would have to put in a big server in a large room in, a, in, a, in the shop somewhere in the basement of a large enterprise company in order to actually leverage that software. And really what people cared about was the software and the business process. They didn't really care about what it ran on. They, they actually were super disappointed when, you know, they ended up problem being as the server was broken, not actually the software. So I think that helps the business obviously maintain and manage and support those services, but it helps the customer because the customer doesn't have that extra overhead that they don't have to care about anymore. And simultaneously, the customer can decide to ramp up or ramp down their use of that service. So if um, there's this famous uh, word called shelfware, right? The concept where you sell licenses and you sell discs <laughs> back in the day and it would just sit on the shelf because no one would use them and there wasn't any support because this enterprise was so busy supporting the core software and delivery of that software that they couldn't actually spend money on services and education and training so that people would adopt the software. So now that we've shifted how software is delivered, that money is now reallocated towards education, towards support, towards services, towards 
other things that build lifetime value that scale monetiz monetization for a product, not just upfront, but throughout its life cycle, which benefits the users and benefits the business. Mm -hmm. And of course the customers win because the customers have the ultimate flexibility. Like when I say customer, I mean the business buying the product. That's a difference. Yeah. And that's something that is sometimes conflated where the end user and the customer are kind of the same, but they're clearly not, especially in an enterprise context. There's the end user who has no context of who actually bought the software, no uh, actual buying power or decision-making power. They're just the beneficiary, hopefully beneficiary, sometimes not the beneficiary of software being deployed into a system, right? And so um, the customer perspective gets to receive this software and manage it as they will across all of the software they own. And they can say, you know what, I don't need that many units or I don't need that much hard drive space or I don't need that much compute power this quarter, so I'm going to ramp it down. And uh, now, of course, businesses are responding and saying, well, let me let you buy a block of services at a reserved rate, which is a fixed rate, which helps the business in turn because that, that customer pushback of wanting to ramp down and ramp up and that flexibility is great, but the business is saying, oh no, like uh, yeah. we can't, then our business is not predictable. So now they sell whole reserve licenses, which is kind of funny. It's sort of a circle back, but this is totally trailing off. Sorry. We could dig into the whole difference between software delivery and software as a service like all day. But my point is, is that ultimately everybody wins when things yeah, are yeah. more as a SaaS model. And that's what IBM realized too. And IBM spent in parallel while they're building this design uh, process, one of the biggest KPIs was actually reducing the amount of software they would sell and packaging things in a better way and also spinning down their legacy businesses in favor of cloud and, and, and uh, Watson and some of the modern businesses that you know, IBM's putting forth today. Well, this is very interesting because it's very relevant, this conversation we're having, considering, you know, the most visible face of product management is usually the type of work that's done for huge consumer side of platforms like social media or dating sites. But I think that for those PMs who are more interested in the B2B side, it's really crucial to understand its different dynamics, you know? the dynamics that are applied to software as a service products. And I want to know what you think about this. There are two different types of dynamics. Like as a PM in a B2C context, you have to think about millions of end users using a product at scale and microtransactions and distractions of the user, you know, with their phone or whatever happens in their day when you, when people use your products in the B2B context, you'll sell large blocks of product to a small subset of users. So you have different contexts to think about, different awareness to think about. Um, and then there's B2B2C, which is kind of the business that I'm in recently, which is we're building developer products for people to build on Twitch such that, like for example, a game developer might leverage our developer products to build interesting interactive games that connect to Twitch, which those games are sold to a bunch of consumers. So now you have to think about like in a Matroshka doll like fashion, how does your product sit within the context of a game developer shop, but also how does the end game player uh, use your product? And then to complicate it even more, especially in the Twitch context, you've got streamers streaming people playing the game or themselves playing the game who are using your developer products who are coming from Twitch. And it all comes back in full circle. 
So as a product manager, this is again, going back to the first conversation, we have to think about the system now. We have to think about all the interplaying technologies and people and actors, if you will, in a service story, in a, in a customer journey. And how do those all come together to create a delightful system and a delightful set of moments? What attracted you to Twitch in the first place? What sort of contribution do you think they're making to the world? Well, Twitch is providing a path to revenue for anyone who has a talent or has a passion or a desire to do something for fans and want to put themselves out there. They have such a voracious, uh, enthusiastic community that just seeks uh, connectivity to one another, to themselves. So just at that core basis, it's a human play. It's way different than any other kind of a video-based service or much software today. It, the whole purpose of Twitch is to build communities and build fans and build relationships. Now, that gets even enhanced with developer technology, with APIs, with what we call extensions, live apps for live streams. Uh, now we're changing the ways viewers and streamers interact with each other and build community and breaking down barriers between them so they can come together closer uh, to create new forms of entertainment or, you know, just to make your, make you smile in a different way or to bring some joy that maybe they were having a bad one, a bad day, or maybe they just want to connect with their friends or, or, you know, who become their friends over time. Like, I think that's the key piece that Twitch has really understood as they built out and it's made building developer products that much more delightful. And now we're doing that same community exercise with developers. And we're saying, hey, developers, you can connect to these communities as well that are so well established and put out your ideas and your thinking and, and, and be involved in this very special place and potentially build a huge business. We've had developers who have built hundreds of thousands of dollars businesses by selling apps through Twitch now, uh, selling technology through Twitch. And uh, so that inspires me and all of us here at Twitch to come to work every day because we're not only helping people build, you know, love and, and connectivity in a community, but also fame and potentially fortune that comes with it. How do you include the input from, you know, the huge community of developers that Twitch has? How do you make sure that their opinions or their vision is permeating your work? What sort of frameworks do you use to do that? Well, it's all about going back to their context and, and what they use every day. So we look at how do they build apps today? How do they build web apps today? And understanding what are the best practices and providing uh, things as simple as code samples uh, through GitHub uh, that are well-documented so they understand how to interface with our technologies and our APIs and, and helper services and all of that. And then we also are looking at building other technologies that actually integrate with their software. Like if you take game developers, for example, we look at, you know, the modern engines that are being used to build games like Unity and, and Unreal. Uh, and we're looking to build technologies that work with those uh, game engines so that they can build with Twitch faster, more reliably, better supported, and ultimately fit the workflow that they work in every day. Uh, so we do, we sweat the small stuff and we care about the details of how the APIs are designed and how documentation is created, what are the standards there? And then we think about the bigger picture, which is like, in the end of the day, 
you can choose to build for any platform. You can choose to build for Slack. You can build for Google. You can build an iOS app. You can go build for uh, Facebook or any of those other technologies. We want you to come to us, not only because of the tools and technology and like our services and our deep thinking, but just generally Twitch is a great place to build a business because you have so many built-in users and so much appetite for interactivity and new ways of interacting with content. And that's what we think about when we think about acquiring and uh, building trust with our developer community. How does your work with Twitch, which is a developer community, coordinate with the work of your APM colleagues that are generally more focused towards the main user who's just streaming or consuming these videos? More so, how do you make sure that your work and their work is coherent and following the same product vision? That's a really great question and something we continue to work on every day. And we have uh, the benefit of uh, being acquired by a very large company that knows how to do product at scale very well, Amazon. And we have adopted many of their product management and product development principles in the company to break down silos, to streamline communication to all PMs and uh, deliver impact that is a win-win across all business units and uh, for all customers. So for example, when we have developer products that impact the way the channel page looks and feels, we will set up a uh, what we call like a six pager document, which is the same way Amazon starts the process of creating products. They write up a document that aligns everything and it has a few components. One is the press release, which is at the end of shipping the product, what is the thing we can announce to customers? And then after the press release is a series of working backwards questions or FAQs. These questions are, who is the customer? What is the biggest problem? for the customer? What's the biggest opportunity? How do we know what they want? Um, there's all these questions that we have to answer. And when you write down your answers, you're very deliberate and very focused. And when you share these answers with people in your company, they get to now think about how your pitch impacts their product and will ask questions back. And they'll say, yeah. well, think about this. Did you consider this angle? Or maybe there's an opportunity here that maybe you weren't considering. After that process has been achieved and there's business alignment and it's what we call greenlit, then we create user stories and um, tech specs and all of that stuff and design artifacts and start sharing them through a common process in the company. And so that process, while it may take a little longer, uh, you know, as compared to a startup where you can just ship stuff and ship experiments every day, and we do ship many experiments in Twitch, but um, when we're actually creating a new feature, or a new outcome, we take time with it because we want to be sure that we're thinking about all the impacts and all the externalities to a product. And it's a very human-driven process. So, you know, we don't just, you know, use algorithms to test things on the fly, or we don't just um, think about one myopic persona, because if you do that, you may do something detrimental or there's a security risk there or something that may occur that wasn't considered. And the only way to consider that is to involve everyone early and, and kind of pack it in at first. And then over time, there's trust that, okay, the plan is in motion, things are in place. I know my role in this process and you know your role, let's work together. 
So how do you measure your success and your achievements? What are your main metrics and kind of what North Stars guide your work? That's a good question. Um, and it's actually something here at Twitch that I've learned that is super valuable and unlike most companies. Uh, most companies create OKRs or KPIs or outputs, which look like, you know, we want to have the number of users be a million users by a certain amount of days, or I want to make X number of revenue in X amount of time. Those are good metrics and those are good business driven metrics. However, there's one key piece that those metrics don't consider is how much you can control the movement of those metrics. Um, if you put a product out there and it turns out there's a market downturn, <laughs> that's the worst extreme case. Or the simpler case is streamers decide to uh, not stream for a week or their schedules are different or um, maybe perhaps you the pricing was wrong, but the idea made sense. So it becomes a conflation of hypotheses and assumptions that ultimately might lead a product astray, whereas instead the product wasn't shipped with conviction knowing what it could move. So we have a process called input goals. So input goals are goals that we set that we know we can achieve and target without any sort of uh, distraction, bias, or influence from the outside markets or market forces or other people or other partners for that matter too, which can happen all the time. So one analogy we use at Twitch is an output goal is I want to lose 20 pounds. An input goal is I'm going to go work out three times a week. Yeah. I can control going to the gym three times a week. What I can't control is sometimes my body will do different things or I may break a leg or something will happen and you know, that might happen. So obviously, you know, the idea of going to work out is still solid and it's still proven and it's still a good thing to measure and we know it's important, but maybe sometimes things change, you know, or sometimes there's forces we can control. So that's how we look at putting products to market is we say, what are the input goals? What are the inputs? that we want to achieve in this quarter or this year or what have you. So we have inputs like the number of guides we're going to document and create and put out, or the number of getting started experiences we're going to produce, or the number of stream live streams we're going to host. And then the outputs might be number of apps created or number of people logging in and signing in. Um, and that distinction uh, has really helped uh, the business align on what is achievable and it's actually hardened our processes and it's hardened what we can deliver to the market. We're still at the end of the day accountable for the end result, the output, and we'll look back. But at least now we can say, well, that output wasn't achieved uh, because not because you didn't meet your uh, goals, your input goals, but because your assumptions about the market was wrong. Your hypothesis was correct, but your assumptions were wrong, right? So things are constantly changing and especially within the streaming community and the way we consume media and sports and games, it's become the new standard for the next generation. So my question is, what's your opinion on the next frontier of this technology? Where are we going right now and what matters for product managers? Well, we think the future of live streaming is live multiplayer entertainment. It's this concept of lean-in interactivity. It's saying that viewers and, and streamers are a 
unified ecosystem that have to be raised up a level. They have to be one up and they have to grow as a community. And the way we can do that is by breaking down the barriers that exist today uh, between a streamer and a viewer and making those communities flourish through multiplayer interactivity. So one of the things we're really leaning into at Twitch is the concept of extensions and apps that run on a channel that allow viewers to passively or actively interact with the stream and maybe even the content itself. We've seen new games come out that have whole streamer modes, Twitch modes, that allow the viewers to vote on whether the player playing the stream and streaming gets a loot drop or gets healed or gets axed or whatever. Mm-hmm. And of course there's going to be the trolls and it's going to be good times. And it's going to be fun. Um, but more importantly, it's changing the way we watch and, and, and consume entertainment. And I think that notion is going to be prevalent regardless of platform, regardless of medium. It's just a matter of understanding how literally the users create inputs like on a remote control versus on their PS4 controller versus on their computer with a mouse and uh, keyboard. So we look at all of those um, confluences and understand the right user experiences for those contexts. But at the end of the day, multiplayer entertainment is going to be a key uh, focus not only for us at Twitch, but we've seen the rest of the market think about this as well. In the past, you've worked with teams across borders, and I'm sure you've done lots of complex stuff with them. So, as a product manager, what are your favorite tools to function in a virtual office? Well, I think besides the obvious sort of uh, tools that PMs use, like Jira and Confluence and Slack and all of that, the one that maybe is because of my background and and bias uh, from design is uh, Figma. We've been using Figma to prototype and to create uh, user experience mockups and journeys and diagrams and charts. And it's been super democratizing in terms of the input we can get across design and engineering and product alike when people can just launch a a screen and multiple people. It's like Google Docs for design. It's it's uh, truly uh, just a really great product and, and very well built. Some kinks to work out with performance, but overall a uh, solid uh, product that is changing how we can communicate the ideas that we have and uh, break down barriers uh, across the organization. And, and uh, you know, pictures speak a thousand words, right? So although we write a lot of Google Docs here, we use a lot of Docs here, uh, Amazon Work Docs and we share that information. Um, but uh, when you have a picture, it just solidifies the conversations because, oh, okay, aha, I get it. That's what you're going for. And so that's something I use every day here. So moving on to a different topic a little bit, I want to know more about what you look for in terms of hiring product managers. Now that you're the senior PM, you've met lots of product people and you kind of know the complete ins and outs of all that. What are you paying attention to during an interview? And also, what do you suggest that new PMs do in their first 90 days after they've been hired for this position? Well, at, uh, at Twitch and just actually, I'll just speak generically. I think product managers, one thing that I think is a myth is that PMs have to have an MBA or they have to have even uh, formal training as a product manager. I think product managers can come from any discipline. 
probably it's a lot harder to go straight from school to being a PM um, unless you have a great network and a set of experience. It's more likely that you're going to transition from one discipline to being a PM. For example, you may be in journalism and you might move over. You might be in computer science or therefore an engineering discipline and you move over or you may be in design and move over. And that's because product managers need to really understand the products they're making and they really need to understand how things work or how things are used. And so necessarily the best PMs are those that have had some subject matter expertise in the field generally or specifically at a company can transition over naturally because they just get it. So I think if you're going to come in to work at a company and you've never, you've not been a PM before, it's not impossible, but it's a higher barrier to entry as opposed to having worked in another discipline first. So, you know, as this is product school, um, product school is going to be great if you are an engineer or a designer that's looking to augment their skill set to eventually be a product manager. But you probably would be best suited doing these kind of um, product school kind of curricula while you're at a company. And so if you're at a company and you're an engineering manager or you're a designer or something and you do product school to augment your skill set and level up there, it's going to be easier for you to get a job as a PM within a company. Now, if you're now, so therefore, if you're a PM that's looking to get hired into another company and you already have that, uh, those chops or whatever, then it becomes down to if you have clarity and thought and vision, if you're able to work backwards from a customer in a use case, if you can explain how you make trade-offs amongst decisions and prioritization, therefore, if you have a clear sense of how to prioritize and why you make those decisions, if you consider data and your processes, data is a more and more important thing as there's data flowing everywhere. So it's all available. It just depends on whether you choose to mine for it. And then um, lastly, if you care about how things are built as well, it's not just about what and why, but it's also how and being able to dig into the details and understand what that means. But, you know, you'll note that I'm not saying you need three years of experience or you need to set a background or you absolutely need to come from design. That's not true at all. I just think that um, product management comes with experience of some nature and it's your choice to lean into understanding the bigger system or not. If you choose, you can just understand how things are made and that's a great field. And in fact, engineers get paid a lot of money uh, today, you know, so it's a very lucrative and it's a very rewarding discipline. But if you want to be in product management, it's, you, it's because you equally care about engineering design and uh, how things go to market. Okay, so my final question I want to know what has becoming a product manager added to your professional life? How has it affected your skill set? Well, with product managers, you have to be able to influence with an organization. Sometimes as a PM, you have nobody working for you, or you may have uh, not very many engineers allocated to you, and you have to be able to work across different, uh, you know, what we call silos within a business who are just kind of working on their own product lines and their own uh, strategy. And you have to influence those people to work with you to deliver the outcomes that are mutually achievable within a company. So for me, being a PM has really taught me how to work well with others, collaborate with others, build products uh, in, a, in a shared way 
and understand different communication styles and the way people work. And that's a life skill that can be applied to anything, right? And also kind of related to that is even being on the front line in like a sales capacity or a solutions architecture capacity and sitting with those people interacting with them teaches you how to empathize with the end customer. And it also teaches you how to sell your own product ideas and architect your own ideas internally. So definitely if you are a PM or an aspiring PM within a company and you have the chance to collaborate with other people in other disciplines, grab coffee with them simply, or get on a whiteboard and brainstorm something. That's a wrap for this episode of The Product Podcast. Join us next week as we continue our exploratory discussions with Satyajit Salgar from Google. Have your own thoughts on the topics covered? Then drop us a line on Twitter. We want to hear from you.